0: This is Gareth Southgate and this is the Three Lines Podcast.
1: Welcome to this special and hopefully more of a frequent type of podcast one I've been looking to do for some time I'll make no bones about it I've been knocking on a lot of England doors trying to get an insight as to what it's like to be part of the England operation sure for my own nosiness but I'm pretty sure there are lots of others out there who would like that same insight too it's been hard often the door hasn't been opened sometimes I don't even think it's been heard I've had a few no thank yous and some I'll get back to yous. And yes, I have been lucky enough to speak with Gareth Southgate, Graham Lasseau and Darius Vassell, but not at any length or with someone I could sit down with and have a relaxed conversation with. Until now. The door was opened with a smile, a beckoning hand extended and in I went. Gary Lewin was part of the England setup for 20 years, working under nine different managers, and I'm grateful for his time that he gave me. Now, we met up in a bar, which is why there is some background noise, but I hope that it doesn't spoil the interview for you. And I'm chuffed that we didn't mention the phrase magic sponge once. My name's Russell Osborne. This is a Three Lions podcast, and this is Gary Lewin and Treating England. to Welcome Gary Lewin to the Three Lions England podcast. Gary. Hello there, thanks for inviting me along. Oh, you're very welcome. Looking for England players stats is quite easy to find. Physiotherapists, on the other hand, are a little bit harder to find. Mm. Am I right in saying that you, you started around, was it 97? What? No, I started in 96. Um, I was brought in by Glenn Hoddle.
0: So after the Euro 96, where Terry Venables was the manager, Glenn took over, and I did my first game in September '96. My claim to fame—it was Bex's debut. So we uh, made our debut on the same day. So was that? But you don't read
1: about mine. <laughs> <laughs> so was that? That was Glenn Hoddle's first game. That was Glenn Hoddle's debut game, yeah. and your own. Yeah, yeah, over away. Okay, what what a start. Yeah, it? exactly.
0: It wasn't there wasn't one you'd write in the book, But yeah, it was an interesting
1: trip. OK, and how, how did becoming England physio style? Well, it's the same as a player, do you get called up or do you yeah,
0: apply? No, it, it was really weird and there's quite a funny story behind it in that um, at the time I was full-time at Arsenal um, obviously Glenn had taken over from Terry Venables I was actually on holiday, on holiday in Florida with my family and um, my father-in-law was checking my mail and my message at home he phoned us and said, uh, oh you've had a message from Glenn Hoddle And I went, I'll leave it out. It's a wind-up, especially with his Tottenham connection and my Arsenal connection. Because I didn't know Glenn from anybody apart from the football world. We phoned back thinking it would be some sort of wind-up. And uh, no, it wasn't. It was Glenn. Um, He would like to invite me to become the England physio on a part-time basis. So a bit like the players, um, you
1: would report on the first day and go home after the the last game. And um, so I started doing that in '96. And so you say on a part time basis, how how does it, or who did you take over from? Was well,
0: um, the physios um, with Terry Venables were Dave Butler, who worked with Terry at Tottenham, and um, I think it was Alan Smith as well. But I came in to work with Alan Smith, so there were two physios working together um, with Terry, uh, sorry, with Glenn. And um, so that started in 96. Um, obviously, we went through with Glenn until. 1998 and 1999 it was after the France World Cup they right. played a couple of qualifiers so I think it was the end of ninety-eight that Glenn left and then when a new manager comes on you just wait to find out whether he's going to keep you or change you you, you, you do it is. So okay. and uh, um, Howard Wilkinson did a couple of games, he kept yep. all the same staff then Kevin Keegan come on board kept the same staff and so he just carried on working and whenever the England manager changed you just waited for the phone call to say would you like to carry on or thanks for all your services right. we're going to go somewhere else so you were no different suppliers really you were just waiting to be selected the difference is you weren't waiting for game to game because once they said you were going to be part of their backroom team it meant you were going to be with them through the whole campaign regardless of like, regardless. not but being an, dropped until or they left you right. would be the physio
1: ok and so I think I read was it you were under 8 managers or n- oh, I've got to te- you're going to test
0: me now so it was Glenn Hoddle then it was Harold Wilkinson on a temporary basis then it was Kevin Keegan Yeah. then I remember I think Peter Taylor took a game yeah um, then I'm not testing you no here. <laughs> no exactly then Sven came on board yeah and um, Sven went through to 2006 Then it was Steve McLaren then when Steve left I think Stuart Pearce took a game as a one off I may be wrong on that one, and then after F- uh, Fabio Capello, and then Fabio then took me on full-time, because Fabio Capello wanted full-time staff. So up until so In today, 2008, I was part-time, I was doing Arsenal and England together, Right, um, and then in 2008, I had a decision to make, do I go for the full-time England post, or do I stay at Arsenal and give up England, mm. and I went for the post and was fortunate enough to get it, and so I went full-time with the FA in 2008. And left Arsenal in August 2008.
1: Was that a bit of a wrench?
0: It was because I mean I was a player at Arsenal when I was younger. Okay. Um, I did an apprenticeship and uh, a one-year pro and then become the physio in 86 so I'd been at Arsenal as the physio for 22 years in some capacity 28 years. Wow. So that was a big decision for me to make but as people often say when your country calls you can't turn it down Especially going full-time with England, it meant that I had more time, freedom. Right. I had my first Christmas day off in 25 years. I had my first New Year's day off in 25 years. Right, okay. Yeah. Um, I could have holidays during the year yeah. rather than just in June. So from a quality of life point of view and the fact it was England, I couldn't really turn it down. So I did that from 2008 to 2016 when I left.
1: I think we'll, we'll come on to when you left yep. soon. Going back to the managers again, we, we ran through the list there. Was there any that stood out for you that on a they, personal or...? No, they,
0: they all stood out in their own way. Mm. And, and it's like managers I've worked with at a club level, they've all got their own way of working, which you like. When you're working with them, you, you enjoy working with them, but they're, they're, they're different in different ways. Obviously, being biased, my first manager was Glenn. So my first national manager being Glenn Hoddle you always remember your first manager um, and it was such a thrill to represent your country and work with your country and work with an idol, some of the players that you idolise even though he was a Tottenham player, yeah. you, he was still a well renowned player so to work with him w- was fantastic but every manager, Kevin Keegan, God, you won't get a bigger uh, idolised player uh, than that. Um, Saint goran Eriksson renowned throughout the world but a completely different way of approaching management Steve McLaren great coach great person to work with Fabio was very Italian really nice guy interesting guy to talk to yeah. but just kept himself back on the football side of it. he had Franco Baldini yeah. was his main um, conduit between staff and players so everyone Roy Hudson was a, was a, a really nice guy to work with so I can't say I had, a, I had a bad experience with any of them, but different experiences with all of them. Yeah,
1: we've mentioned that first game, but as you go along, you're probably a member of staff who who sees players at maybe their most vulnerable time. Is it?
0: You see them at all times, really. You see them when they're at the highest point because they're playing for the country. When they're at the lowest point, when you get knocked out of a tournament, um, you see them. You see them get injured. Normally, when they're injured, they don't come, but. In the years you've had Wayne Rooney break his foot, you've had um, Michael Owen do his cruciate. So you'll see them when they're at their lowest as well when they get injured. But I've been very, very lucky. I've been through many, many squads. <clears throat> I mean, altogether I think I did 230 odd England games. Wow. So, I, I, and the really nice thing about it now is I'm getting that bit older now. When I see the players, even from that long ago, it's just their family. When you go to a tournament, and it showed this year in the World Cup in in Russia, you become a family. When you are together for six weeks, so the 98 squad, the the, Gazers, Teddy Sheringham, Alan Shearer, you see them now, and they are family. They're still very, very... And that camaraderie, you never lose. I bumped into Rob Lee the other day, um, because he lives local to where I am, and so we've never never not been apart that sounds a bit romantic but we haven't seen each other for a long time but it's as though it was only yesterday that's a really nice feeling because you see players from um, eras past and they still are very very close friends
1: do you think that's a a relationship special because you're a physio and you're treating them or or do players have that sort of relationship I think
0: players get it as well Mm. Um, as I said it's I mean classic this week look at the Ryder Cup guys are competitors all year round but then guys are going to be family for the rest of their life now because of what they've got together in the Ryder Cup the England squad from this year they're going to be friends for life and you get that family bond when you go to a World Cup or an Olympics or a team event you get that family bond because you you live together for six weeks and I don't think you ever lose it and I think that's one of the the nicest thing of sport any sport that you get that camaraderie that lasts a lifetime
1: you mentioned Gaza there. <laughs> God, yeah, lastly. yeah, yeah. Everyone's got a Gaza story. Oh, we've many with games with him, really. Um, w- probably two years of him.
0: Um, so from '96 to '98, and then he was left out of the World Cup squad in '98. I don't think he ever got back into it. No. But Gaza, <clears throat> Gaza is one of the nicest, nicest guys you're ever going to meet. Probably one of the best stories I've got was uh, I think it was the Georgia game, which had been my third game we played we way ways to travel the day before the game train at the stadium go back to the hotel and play the game the following day as we're walking off the pitch Gazza's walking off in his training kit and there's a disabled boy in the chair so Gazza being Gazza goes and jumps on him cuddles him takes off his t-shirt here I have my training t-shirt here I have my training shorts (laughs) here I have my boots and he walks in after giving everything apart from his pants to this young kid Get in the dressing room, all get changed. He then shrugs over to the kit man and says, Martin, do me a favour, go out and buy me a pair of boots tomorrow because I've got no other boots. <laughs> so he just gave the kid everything. Really? And, that, and that's what he was like. Yeah. He was the most generous, nicest guy. And with everything he's been through, everyone that's been associated with Paul Gascoigne loves him to bits. You, right. you see it now you'll see people interviewed and talk about I think Gareth Southgate said some nice things about him recently Yeah. you, you can't do anything else because he was despite what he's been through he's just one of the nicest
1: guys you could ever meet wow. well one day, one day I hope to, uh, yeah, to but, have yeah, but a good chat with him, speak to him yeah. yeah I'd love to because um, he has got some stories oh, has he? apparently so, so. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, when it comes to Clubs, club versus countries, phrase yep. that everyone yep. sort of says. Did you ever come into any sort of conflict with... I won't use conflict. Right. Um, what you got to think about in medicine, it's
0: slightly different to coaching and manager. Mm. In medicine, you have a fundamental duty of care to the player. Yeah. And the player has to be your main care. If you do something wrong for that player, you get struck off the medical list you end up driving a cab in Camden. So you have a duty of care to a player. You have a responsibility to your manager and club and country. But fundamentally it's the player care that's important. So all decisions you make about a player are in the best interest of the player. Clubs will argue with their country about what's best for the club, what's best for the country. You would stay out of that argument. You would state the facts to your country manager State the facts to your club counterpart, so the doctor or physio at the club you're dealing with. You would then let the managers deal with what's best for club and country. Right. You would not get involved in that. And you would accept what was best for the player. Now, if that meant missing an England game that he could play for his club, that's a managerial decision. That's not a medical decision. Medically, you would state to the manager, and it might be, If he plays for England, he could break down, he will miss three or four club matches. Or, if he plays for England, we don't think he would miss any club matches because of it. You would state what is factual and what is medically factual um, and give a medical answer. You would then let them discuss the duty of care to the player from a manager country club point of view. I had this phrase, and we used it for years at the FA, it would always be physio to physio, doctor to doctor, manager to manager. And then you would argue out each case as you go along. So it's not as black and white as the media like you to. Right, yeah. It isn't club versus country. That's the thing, things have to be. Now sometimes managers from clubs and country will disagree. Mm. Then you fall back onto duty of care to the player. So you would not knowingly put the player at risk. Of course, yeah.
1: And that's if you stick to those rules, you can't really go wrong. I was trying to think of a bit of a grim subject, but but the worst England injuries that I, I could remember. And I remember Paul Ince in Italy or with he the head wound. It, yeah. Now, that looked nasty,
0: but it actually wasn't that bad an injury. But the problem is, when you get a scalp injury yeah. and players are very hot and sweaty, they bleed like mad. Now, the problem we had with Paul was... The Italians had locked the dressing rooms. Right. And in those days, we used to stitch in the dressing room. We took eight minutes on Paul because six of those minutes was trying to get into the dressing room. And funny enough, as you do in all medicine, you do something, you then reflect on it. We then changed the way we worked. In future internationals, we would take a stitching kit pitch side away from home because we wouldn't trust the home team to be healthy. I have to say the right word is yeah. not neglectful but helpful yeah. and uh, so Paul's looked nasty and we just patched him up as best we could because it was such a big game we had to get him back on the pitch as soon as possible Yeah, I couldn't think of anything else off the top of my head probably the Marco Owens probably the, the, when he ruptured his cruciate against right. Sweden in the World Cup that was probably one, Course, yeah. one of the worst ones I remember Yeah, um, Martin Keona fractured his shoulder in Paris in the tournoi in 97. Okay, right. He went up to head a ball out on his shoulder and he broke his shoulder. Right. To have major surgery when he came back to the UK. A few cups, a few ligament ruptures, but in general, such wood. All not in been, a day's work. Yeah, really. not been too bad. Okay.
1: What about when you hear Beckham and Rooney metatarsal? Does that send a shiver down your spine? Yeah, I mean,
0: <laughs> what you've got to remember what the experience of working with a national team, the biggest experience is you're living in a goldfish bowl. Everything you do is magnified and viewed by everybody. You then get a lot of experts coming out who don't actually know what the injury is. They second guess what the injury is, and they say, oh, if that's the injury, this is the treatment. Now, what they're saying isn't wrong, but they actually don't know what the injury is. And there's so many different types of fractures. Depends on where on the bone it is. There's so many different ways of dealing with injuries depending on what the actual injury is that you get almost immune to it, that you get into a little bubble of looking after that player what goes on the outside. So the metatarsal thing becomes quite funny because it almost becomes a trendy thing that you're breaking metatarsals. The fact is, I think if you actually looked at the statistics, there weren't more metatarsal fractures. The fact that it happens with two of our biggest players brought it to the
1: forefront. Yeah. But actually, statistically, it happened across the ball. Okay. Um, was, was there an, an oxygen tank? Was that right? No, no, no. That, that's been on in
0: sport for years, and okay. then there's been a lot of research about you put people in an oxygen tank. It, it can it makes the environment for healing ideal um, and nowadays it's the, the hyperbaric chains are still used by a lot of people part the, parcel, it's part and parcel of the treatment programme it was nothing new, new, unique but in social media or in media world oh this is unbelievable this is revolutionary it's actually been around for quite a long time I mean one of the funniest stories I remember was in 98 World Cup we took baked beans off the pre-match milk Right, Because basically baked beans were difficult to digest. They do things to your body that we all know about. (laughs) And on a match day, when players are very nervous, that's not always ideal. Right. Don't get me wrong, great source of protein, very nutritional. But they have effects on the body that in a dressing room aren't very nice. (laughs) So we actually took them off the pre-match meal. One of the papers picked it up. There was this national campaign, Save Our Baked Beans. I don't remember that one. And uh, if you if you look it up, yeah. you'll see it. And it was one of our main national newspapers did this massive campaign. We were wetting ourselves laughing about it because we hadn't banned them. Yeah. We just spoke to the players and we'd take them thing in. we put them back on again because it wasn't worth the aggravation of what we thought was actually quite a reasonable decision at the time. Yeah. But that's the sort of land you're living in. That's the sort of environment that you're working in, that everything you do or, or decide is magnified massively. Yeah. And the problem is medically you don't have a right reply. So if you talk about an injury you get all the experts coming out saying what, what you should be doing with it, you have a code of conduct medically, you can't defend yourself because you can't legally talk about that player's injury without his consent, so you don't bother.
1: Interesting as you said about 230 odd games was it yeah intimidating atmospheres or, or atmospheres was, uh, from a physio's point had, of view because yeah, you've been had few, on I mean the pitch, I, I must
0: admit when you get into match mode you almost get blinkered to it all um, so you're just focusing on the games but the ones that stand out to me um, obviously the one you mentioned Paul wins Rome yeah in 97 um, that was intimidating one of the most intimidating places was uh, we played Turkey Right. um we drew 0-0 i think the game's remembered f- um for a bit of a fracas in the tunnel at half time okay, um yeah. Kalini was the referee right um Tell we drew 0-0 yeah. to qualify for, for the world cup i think that was a really intimidating atmosphere i mean that really was intimidating yeah. was that um, in Galatasaray's well yeah, to Hell stadium it. yeah yeah i'm sure it's galatasaray stadium yeah uh, it was in istanbul anyway I Right. That. moscow It was quite intimidating when we played there with Steve McLaren on the AstroTurf pitch we got beat 2-1. And you go to other countries like Azerbaijan, they don't make it friendly for you because at the end of the day they want their team to beat you. So at the end of the day you're working for your country and it's a great honour. You don't really, you never feel intimidated by it.
1: Do you ever get to see any of the the places where you kept within the confines? You fly
0: in, you stay in the hotel, you train, you do the game, you fly out again.
1: Simple as that Yeah And the World Cup This year Obviously you, yeah. you weren't part it of It my
0: first one I've been to in 20 years So Did you miss it? it? Was a, what oh, it was the situation? It was a It was a, it, 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 it was a very strange feeling yeah. I got quite emotional Listening to the national anthem Right um, And not being there But then I turned into an England fan And I was the same as everyone else Jumping up and down When they were winning yeah. Disappointed when they went out But really proud of what they achieved And the way they achieved it, they really, I think, they brought the England team back to the public again, which was really lovely to see. Gutted I wasn't part of it, obviously, (laughs) but that's football. And I know the staff have taken over from from me and the doc and really nice guys, and I was so pleased for them and proud of the team. As I said... You, you don't work that many years for your country and not become a, an emotional fan and that's what I've become so really really pleased how well they did really proud of what they did uh, and disappointed when they come home
1: and I guess the sort of the I don't want to say the elephant in the room but if we go back to the last World Cup to 2014 in Brazil
0: oh, well, Christ, yeah, that, that's, that's <laughs> do I dare ca- ask you no nah, no nah, nah, that's another chapter for the book um, I mean, it was the, just the set, r- the r- set the tone. It yeah. was
1: Daniel Sturridge scored for yeah. England against Italy. Well, I'll
0: go back even further than okay. that. I, um, we were doing our recce's and we are doing our due diligence of emergency action plans, checking the local hospitals, meeting all the surgeons, getting all the medical pathways put in place if one of our players picks up a serious injury. So, of course, we play uh, Italy in Manaus and we have our emergency action plan of case of any serious injury. We go one down... Daniel Surridge and then equalises. I jump up like everyone else does to celebrate. I then put my left foot down to go and get the drinks. I didn't fall over a bottle as Roy thought I had, right. but my foot slips on the turf, hit the grass, because it went from turf to grass, Okay. and my foot angulated. And as it angulated, I dislocate my ankle and broke my, my leg in two or three different places. So it went from the sublob to the ridiculous in that all these emergency action plans that we had been going through for players, I ended up being on the end of it. So I knew what was coming. I lived in the hope, Doc Beasley was a doctor at the time and he reduced the dislocation so he popped the ankle back into place. I was praying at the time, it was one of those dislocations where you may have a chip fracture, you can put me in the boot, I can carry on working but we went for x-rays at the hospital and they put the x-rays up on the screen and I remember turning around to the other doctor, we had the Doc Wexler, and I just said, looks like I'm going home, Doc, because I knew straight away it was it was a big, big issue. You diagnosed yourself, Oh, did you? it was, I'd shattered the fibula, I'd fractured the tibia, I'd ruptured three sets of ligaments uh, and I needed reconstructive surgery, so I flew back on the plane with the team, back to Rio, I flew from Rio to London. I landed at twelve thirty in London on the Monday, and I had surgery at three o'clock that afternoon.
1: And you still feel the effects today,
0: or? Oh you yeah, and the ankle is still very, very stiff. I'm getting old now, and when it gets cold, I feel it. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was a horrible experience. I missed. I was back at work within twelve weeks. I did the next two internationals in September, so I didn't miss any games apart from the two that I missed in the World Cup. Yeah. The saddest thing for me, and I, and I think point I got at my most down over it was watching them play against Uruguay. And again, I mentioned it earlier, listening to the national anthem. Okay. I correct. sat at home with my daughters, and I actually cried really? because it was the first time I hadn't been there. Yeah. And uh, that that was horrible. But unfortunately, they came home nine days later. So in a way, that probably made me feel a bit better in a horrible way. But. I'd rather they stayed out a bit longer because for six months you give everything to prepare for a World Cup and when you come home it's the end of the world it's, it's, it's probably the worst feeling whether you're a player or you're a member of staff and I read all the time about players don't care they care and they care a lot if you've ever been in the dressing room when we've been knocked out of a tournament they care a lot you have players that are crying in the dressing room it it is I get quite angry when I read they don't care about playing for their country Mm. that's a load of nonsense they care and they're passionate about it but as we in the football industry you get knocked out you brush yourself down you're back to club football again very quickly you move on
1: Football being football did you get Some stick from the players. I got battered.
0: (laughs) I got absolutely battered. I mean, one of the funniest things was Daniel Sturridge texts me and says, "Thanks, mate. I scored my first World Cup goal, and all they're talking about you breaking your ankle." (laughs) So yeah, no, you got a lot of stick, but that's part of the the banter, as they say. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How did it
1: all come to an end? Yeah,
0: I mean, from my point of view. I was disappointed to leave, um, but they brought in a head of performance who wanted to restructure. If I put it from my side first, mm. I wasn't part of that restructure, which was disappointing from my point of view. But I've got to admit, the restructure they put in place was needed. we have been campaigning for more staff for years, and what they've brought in place now is... You're getting the rewards, the younger age groups winning national major tournaments. Yeah. St George's Park, I mean we were instrumental in the planning and building St George's Park. We always knew that the FA needed that to develop the younger teams. And it's become the cornerstone of our development in football for men and women's football. But it's okay having the facility, you needed the staff to fulfil that, that, that goal, that aim and the structure they brought in suddenly put a lot more full-time medical staff in at different age groups which was desperately needed so in one hand I was disappointed I wasn't part of that restructuring but after 20 years I'd had a great innings I yeah. couldn't, couldn't be moan that I'd love to have been part of it but I wasn't to be but on the other hand what they've brought in is a fantastic structure for the FA and for the development of young Men and women footballers, um, and I think it's beginning to show. I think it's going to c- carry on, continue, continue to develop, and I think we'll get the full it in the next five, six years. And um, I can only praise what they're doing. Be really, as an England fan now, be really happy with what they're doing, and actually think for the good of football, it was the best thing they've ever done.
1: I read that you're an, an ambassador for the brain and. St- Brain and Spine Foundation. I'm oh,
0: ambassadors for two charities. Oh, right. uh, the Brain and Spine Foundation was a head injury found um, charity that was set up after a Michael Watson fight. Okay. Um, when he suffered a really severe head injuries, and Arsenal was Michael was an Arsenal fan. That's right. And I looked after Michael before his fights, and so were you ringside then? No, we played that day, so I couldn't go to the fight. Okay. And uh, but I helped. I say I helped him. I was with him for many, many months after joining his really long, slow rehabilitation program. He had a testimonial at Arsenal to raise money for him because the sad side of it was, although he was a world champion or fighting for the world championship, he didn't make the money because he hadn't reached the top. Right. So his life sort of ended in the sports world without a great deal of financial backup. The guy that was looking after him, Professor Peter Hamlin, was a neurosurgeon, set up a charity, which I was a trustee for a long period of time, but that became very time consuming, so now I'm ambassador. The other charity that I'm ambassador for is the Willow Foundation, which is Bob Wilson, the ex-BBC presenter and Arsenal goalkeeper. He set a charity for his daughter, Anna, who died from cancer very, very young. And I've been very heavily involved in that charity ever since Bob set it up. Bob was actually my best man when I got married, so I've been a close family friend of Bob's for many, many years. So yeah, I'm an ambassador for both those charities.
1: I see. And you did, you'd mentioned in passing there something for the book was that just a turn of phrase or is there really a book in the uh, the offing?
0: Um, I discussed with, do you remember Tom Watt? Yes.
1: The ex the senders character and he, he, when I, My first time I ever went to Arsenal I sat two rows in front yeah. of him and I've yeah. got his autograph on my first Arsenal yeah. programme.
0: Really nice guy and done a lot of, does a lot of production in the theatre but does a lot of writing and I met up with Tom last year about the thoughts about doing a book His advice to me was, wait until you actually leave football before you do it, Um, because despite all your best intentions of writing nice things, you have to be a bit careful that sometimes they get misconstrued, and you don't want to upset people. And uh, so I think it's something that I will possibly do in the the upcoming years, Um, but at the moment there's nothing set in stone.
1: Wish you luck with that. Thank you. Gary, thank you very much for, for joining us and taking the time um, this evening and okay. uh, wish you all the best for the future.
0: Brilliant. No, thank you for inviting me along and uh, keep up the great support for the England team because uh, I think we've got some really exciting times coming up.
1: Let's hope so. There we have it. An insight from one of England's long-serving backroom staff. Once again, thank you to Gary Lewin for his time and agreeing to meet with me. I hope you enjoyed it. Please do spread it about, share and like and I'd love to hear your feedback on it too. Do let me know. We're on Twitter at 3 Podcast and search Facebook. We're on there too. And I'd be most grateful if you could leave a review at your podcast host and I'll continue to knock on England doors and see who is open for a chat. Until the next time, cheers.